Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. So hello and welcome to today's show on World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. And today I welcome back to the show an always entertaining and insightful guest, Reverend Dr. James Gaither, uh, commonly known more affectionately, though, as Jim Gaither. Jim has been a Unity minister since 1979, and uh, he has a master's in philosophy and a doctorate in theology. He taught at Unity ministerial and spiritual education programs and schools or whatever it's called because it keeps changing its name. But he was there for over 25 years. And he's also served as a church minister for over 12 years and is formerly the president of the Holos University Graduate Seminary. Jim has written for Unity Magazine now for over 40 years and is the author of the book Hidden, The Hidden Realm of God about Jesus and his healing philosophy. And today we'll take a look at the recently released and revised edition of Jim's original book called The Essential Charles Fillmore, which he edited and did a wonderful commentary on. So uh, I'm excited to look at the new revised edition. Um, it's a guide to Charles Fillmore's practical metaphysics, uh, practical mysticism and metaphysics. So it's a joy, as always, to welcome Jim Gaither to today's show. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Paul. It's always a delight for me to uh, have conversations with you, whether it's uh, you know in person or over the phone or on your radio program. So uh, it's great to be here, and I look forward to uh, our discussion. Well, good, and thank you. I, I feel the same. Uh, so what's different about this new, uh, this new edition? Oh, well, that's, that's a really good question and probably requires something of a long answer. Um, one of the <laughs> things is <laughs> uh, actually many of the, um, the articles that, that are in it, the uh, chapters written by Charles Fillmore, are the same ones that were in the original version that we uh, published in 1999, I think it was. However, um, what I've done is I've, I've edited, so first point is I've edited, the, edited those down to try to give them a better flow by eliminating unnecessary digressions or repetitive passages so that, uh, or, or, and even repetitive Bible stories. Charles, you know, taught and wrote for some 50 years or whatever it was. So over the course of time, he, you know, he occasionally repeats himself, 
right? Uh, people talk about that he changed his, his changed his mind on things. Uh, there are some changes, but not probably as many as you might as you might think. So, I wanted to I wanted to make the chapters uh, flow a little better, make it easier for the reader to you know grasp the sort of the essential points without getting distracted by un- unnecessary digressions. Um, we also. One of the things he did actually was uh, from your suggestion, Paul, which was to, uh, to for at the head of each chapter, write a little short, uh, a short commentary about what you would find in that actual chapter, and uh, and uh, and to put the date on it, so that so now each chapter's got a little piece of commentary right before it. So as you as you go into the chapter, um, uh, you'll find. A description of okay, here's what's important in this chapter, or here's why this chapter is, uh, you know, and it's uh, and important, important. It has some historical significance for unity, um, you know, that that sort of thing. So you, you read the if you read the commentary first, then you kind of know what's coming up and what what goes in there. Previously, all that information had been in the introductory commentaries for each section. So now there's still introductory commentary for the section, but then each chapter has its own commentary. And, and of course, I edited the, I revised the, the commentaries as well. So I tried to update them and, and, and give them a little sharper focus on what, um, you know, what the, uh, what, what each section was about and why it was important. So um, I, I completely rewrote the, the introduction as well. So the, I did a lot of rewriting of my own stuff. We, we organized things a little bit differently. Um, now that the chapter titles are actually titles that are about. Uh, well, I'll just give you an example. Uh, just I'll just pull out a random example here. Uh, chapter. There's a chapter called the science now called the science of spirit. It was originally given the title that uh, that Charles Fillmore uh, gave in the in the chapter that it was from. It was called the true character of being. So. Science of Spirit is the name of the chapter, but and then there's a commentary, and then there's, um, you know, the the chapter written by Charles Fillmore that's called the True Character of Being. So, so the chapter headings I think are are somewhat more pointed and informative about what's important in or what's significant in the in the piece that we've included, and then we also of course give the chapter title that or the article the title that Charles gave it and give the data on that. Um, so those are some of the main changes that were done. I wanted to also make the book a little more compact, hence the reason for the for the editing, shortening things. Um, so the first the first book is fuller. The original version is fuller in the sense that it includes like the entire piece, but uh, from Fillmore's writings. But um, anyone can find if they really want to go back and read the whole thing, including the things I've edited out. You know that that's that's a thing that's possible either by reading the original book or through Unity Library, finding a you know the uh, a, a, a magazine article or a pamphlet. But um, anyway, that that's that's sort of a summary of what's different about it. Right, and I like the uh, the fact that it's more user friendly because of that. You know, those little introductions to each chapter are really helpful. I think to set the uh, the piece in context, and and also you mentioned where the piece is from. You know, which book or pamphlet or, or whatever the that the actual uh, chapter by Charles is from and that helps me because you know I've, I've over the years as a unity minister I've read all of Charles Fillmore's books but can't always remember the name of each uh, chapter and so it's really nice to see oh yeah that's where that belongs so before you had to dig around it was in there but you had to dig around to find it so 
But yeah, it was in the coming, com- it was in uh, usually in the uh, com- the commentary of the second. Right, so the, you have to jump back and forth. Right. Yeah. So yeah, if you're listening, folks, and and want to get the book, you know, I think you'll find it a, a very easy read because uh, Jim has really presented it in a in a systematic but user friendly user friendly way. Some people say, um, and you mentioned this in the in the general introduction, that. Um, Charles Fillmore is a little difficult to read, you know, and the main main reason is he wasn't really a writer, right? He he spoke um, and lectured, and uh, a lot of his lectures and write were, were transcribed into writings rather than than being a, a book in and of themselves. However, you know, having said that, I don't think he's that difficult to read. Um, and uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, you, you found other writers like um, Alfred North Whitehead and others who are a little yeah. more, uh, you know, inscrutable uh, the, than. Uh, and you, you have a quote from Wittgenstein at the very beginning of the book. And if you've ever read any of his stuff, <laughs> yeah. it's fascinating, but it's, it's really uh, dense. So Charles Fillmore yeah, is a breeze cool. compared to some of that stuff. So, yeah, it's all pretty much relative. He, he's he's not. Um... Charles didn't write like your sort of traditional rah-rah, positive thinking or inspirational. He, he liked to delve into things, you know, he liked to, and he liked to connect science to uh, metaphysical ideas and, and provide, you know, sort of the, his reasons for holding different kinds of positions. So, you know, he, he, he was like, yeah, he, he was influenced by, and the thing to keep in mind too is, you know, he's influenced by the, the, uh, by, uh, the, the writing approach that the transcendentalists took in the 19th century. Like these big, and they wrote, um, they wrote, well, if you take somebody like Emerson, Emerson sort of wrote, uh, I, I think, uh, sentences. You know, that's sort of his art. He writes like these, these wonderful, quotable sentences, but he didn't really believe a lot in having something really clearly structured and organized or, or making an argument so much as writing from inspiration, writing his first thought. So if you, if you write that way, if you sort of write intuitively and in whatever comes to you and sort of in the moment, then chances are it's going to be challenging to follow the stream of thought and so it's kind of in a way charles is a little bit like emerson in the sense that you will find these passages or these quotations or these pithy sorts of expressions of of ideas that will be very powerful but but you won't necessarily see it's not necessarily always easy to see how the you know what the structure is of the chapter or how it's organized or what his sort of his plan is so yeah he's not He's not a trained writer, but he is, you know, he is inspiring. And I think one of the sort of uh, deeper uh, thinkers, not just thinking, but like from his own inner spiritual experience, that 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 his, you know, his writings come from that deeper spiritual place. And so he, he's he's worth reading for whatever kind of inspiration and ideas you might get. And one of the things I've always loved is that every time I've reread something by Charles Fillmore, I find something new or I find something that I previously didn't understand or couldn't see how that anyone could possibly hold that position. Uh, and, uh, and, and what I found over the years is that as I mature spiritually and intellectually, I understand more of what he's saying and find myself more and more in agreement with the things that he says, the things that I previously maybe couldn't have made sense out of. So. Right, interesting. Yeah, and also, you know, we're, we're so um, habituated now to 
modern popular writing, right? That uh, we find, you know, old style writing from the 19th, early 20th century a little ponderous, and um, right, and maybe yeah. that's not the fault of the the writer back then, but the fact that we 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 no longer have uh, the training to 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 read texts like that, unfortunately, and that says something about our modern educational process perhaps you know that we we've dumbed down our um abilities to to take in complicated text i mean some people uh, hate reading shakespeare because you know it makes no sense but once you read shakespeare and start to get into his mindset and his worldview you know then it becomes alive and i think it's the same with uh, with fillmore once once you understand where, where he's coming from what what, he, what he's about then it becomes fascinating. And as you say, I like that, like what you said, that, that there's more to him than meets the eye sometimes. And uh, it's it, uh, it rewards close reading. So it's great to have a book like this. So we don't have to go through all of the many books that he wrote, but we've got this um, sort of distilled version of the, of the essentials, right? And um, you, you have laid this out quite systematically, especially for Unity, you know, because in Unity, we are, we're not necessarily scholarly in our approach. We're more inspirational, but but you've sort of given it a, a, an overlay of, uh, of scholarly, um, systematic uh, theology here. You know, and, and even using words like epistemology and um, eschatology and and uh, pneumatology, etc., uh, etc. Et um, Christology. There's another one, and I think this is good though because we need scholars in unity, right? To um, to show that we that our our teaching um, is um, is rigorous, you know that it ha it has it makes sense in all these um, academic areas. It's not limited to academics, but it but it's uh, it can uh, fit into to that framework as well. Yeah, you know, I think that even the the uh, non-academic uh, reader who's reading for spiritual insight and inspiration or knowledge or you know ideas for practicing. Uh, practicing prayer, I think it's good for the general reader to have some acquaintance with some basic theological categories. It helps you to discern um, the difference between one system and another. And the other thing yes. is, I think that, you know, the, the commentaries partly aim at providing not only the sort of a theological context in that way, but also a historical one to sort of show, okay, here's how his ideas fit in that whole stream of thought. Here's how, like, how, sometimes how they're different, sometimes how they're the same, uh, or the, the connections that they make with the tradition. And I think that's a good thing to know, too. It's just how are, what, what is sort of common ground, right? And then, and also what are the, you know, what's distinctive about, um, about unity thought and Charles Fillmore's thought. So I think it's good. I think it just sort of opens people, it, it can help open people up to, you know, what he is doing there. Um, and, and open them up to, like, for example, the section on epistemology, the nature of knowledge. Uh, sometimes people don't really think that much about or reflect on, well, why is somebody making this claim? What's the basis of it? You know, is this, you know, uh, is it just an opinion, a feeling the person has, or is there some sort of substance or evidence or, or reasoning underlying it or intuition and, and how to, you know, kind of sort those things out? Because, you you know, uh, I think one of the things that you find in uh, religious and political discourse is that people have strong feelings based on their conditioning and strong opinions, but they haven't really looked behind those and asked, well, why would anyone believe this? And so that's sort of the role of, uh, 
you know, understanding the nature of knowledge is, okay, what makes something true, right? What beyond it being a strongly held opinion, what kind of thing can provide, provide evidence or grounding for a particular belief? So I wanted, that's one of the reasons I wanted to actually start with that section so people would see, okay, this is how Fillmore thought, this is the grounding for the kinds of things that he says. Well, the interesting thing about Fillmore, I think, is that he he combines seemingly disparate ways of approach, right? Because he was very scientific in many regards and talks about, you know, some of the um, uh, the bases for, for unity, which is mental science, uh, Christian science, and, and that whole spiritual scientific approach based on principle and uh, and reason, really. And, and that's one side. And then the other side are these uh, flights of uh, mystical... Um, you know, I wouldn't say fancy, but flights of inspiration that you see in his his writings, right? Where he's be, he's being very um, systematic and, and spiritual, and all of a sudden, uh, or scientific, I should say, and all of a sudden there's this, um, you know, there's a statement that blows you out of the water. You know, he's got it, got into higher realms of uh, of mystic awareness, and and I think that's that's fascinating for me that uh, he's hard to pin down in that sense too. Right. Well, you know, part of his Part of his epistemology, if I say that, is, is what, what do you know from inner experience, right? Um, science doesn't, doesn't go there because it can't go there. Its methods aren't, you know, its methods aren't meant for going there. The inner dimensions of what, you know, the content. A scientist can measure if a person is meditating in the sense that they can say, oh, they're producing beta brainwaves and theta brainwaves and that sort of thing. But they right. know what the actual content of the experience is. And mysticism, and that's kind of where mysticism comes in. Mysticism is fundamentally, I think, about an, uh, internal experiences that people have that have what uh, William James called a noetic quality, a sense of knowledge even though maybe they can't exactly explain what that knowledge is, there's a sense of knowing that comes with that. And so he brings all of that together. And, and one of the things that, I, you know, uh, I don't know if I make this point as clearly as I would like to in the, in the book, but um, a, a metaphysical system that's talking about the nature of reality needs, to, a good one, needs to have a connection with an explanation of a compatibility with science. Because science is, is, a, is you know, a realm of knowledge based on observation and mathematics and experimentation. It's the most solid knowledge that we have of how things work in the, in the external world. Well, if your metaphysics is completely disconnected from that, you're, you, it's not really a good metaphysics because metaphysics is supposed to be about, like, what's the nature of being? What's the nature of becoming, right? It's even about what is the nature of the world that we experience. And if, it complete, if, if a metaphysics completely disconnects from science, then right there you've got a, you've got a problem with the explanation. You've got to ask, how does, this, how does this connect? And sometimes, you know, so um, I hope you don't mind me rambling about this a little bit, but uh, um, people, there, there are systems that hold, well, the universe is just, uh, is just an illusion, or the physical world is just an illusion. And so their, their idea of metaphysics is whatever abstract system of beliefs they have, and they, just, and they, and they simply dismiss the, uh, you know, the external world or the world of perception or sensation without any sort of explanation. And, of course, that's the world that we practically engage in most of the time is that world of perceptions, right? And the world that science studies, that's what we are engaged with. So how do our minds, 
connect with that. How, you know, we talk a lot about the law of mind and holding ideas and prayer and meditation. Why does that, why does it have any value related to our experience in the perceptual world, which includes our bodies? Because in this system, clearly it does, because the claim is that prayer, meditation, affirmation, certain ways of thinking and acting have physiological effects. Right. You can't disconnect from you can't disconnect from the scientific, you know, scientific perspective. And so, you know, if you study philosophy, you see that a lot of times philosophy is just about how do these things connect? You know, they don't get they don't get to the level of practicality that uh, like Charles Fillmore does. He's not maybe a systematic thinker or he's not an academically trained thinker, but he has some wonderful insights that fit very nicely with, for example, I can show you passages or talk about elements of his, his philosophy that fit with what's called process philosophy. I mentioned Alfred North Whitehead before. So anyway, it's it's I think it's an important piece to recognize he was trying to make sense out of his mysticism, his metaphysics, and the, 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 the realm of science. And I think part of that comes from just that Charles Fillmore was a natural sort of truth quester, as I call it, somebody who really wanted to know what the truth was, and so he wanted to look at sort of all the kind of evidence that he could find to support you know, his vision of reality and how to cope with it, if I could put it that way. Yeah, and I like that. I think that's true. He, he was very eclectic and... Um willing to see everything, you know, from, from high science to the, the most uh, unusual phenomenon, uh, you know, as, as Christopher the Mill and his understanding and always, like you said, provided some kind of rigorous um, uh, analysis of it to see if it, it was true. You know, the, to, to my point about the, the science on the one hand and, and mysticism on the other, you know, the, the second chapter is uh, his pamphlet, the, the Pure Reason and Honest Logic of Practical Christianity. You can't get more scientific than that. And then the next one is um, from his book, Adam Smashing Power of Mind, Faith Precipitations. That's always been one of my favorite titles for one of his um, articles, Faith Precipitations, which is exactly what you're talking about, you know, that ability of, of, of the, the, the mystery of being to, to enter into us and not just enter in, but to be precipitated, right, to be, to be, um, to make drastic transformation there through, through our ability to, to hold those thoughts with faith. And that, that's powerful. That's, that's typical Charles Fillmore to me, you know, that, that excitement of, um, seeing these things coming into activity. You brought up, um, you know, illusion and absolutism and, and, you know, the thinking that, uh, that there is only spirit, everything else is an illusion. I think we're, we're, that's an ongoing uh, subject for unity, I think, because I see two strands in unity, though the one that is more absolutist, that, that says that uh, everything's an illusion, and then the other one that would say, no, there's a, there's a relative truth to expression, right? It's, um, they nest in each other, a bit like Shiva and Shakti in the Hindu uh, system of understanding. So, uh, Ultimately, maybe there is only spirit, but but uh, while we're in this universe, I think that there's a dance, there's a sort of a cosmic dance between um, the formless and the form, right? Yeah, you know, and I think one of the, uh, I think those are those are really good, really good points. Especially, I like the uh, thing about the the nesting of the one and one and the other. It's a, it's a nice it's a nice image. Um, I, I think that one of the um, one of the things that emerged as people thought about the universe and as is mind rather than matter is they thought okay so well if it's not if the world is spiritual and every substance is spiritual then 
then, you know, and that absolute part is true, then all the rest of this stuff must be just some kind of illusion. And that's not really what idealist metaphysics, which, you know, unity is an example of idealist metaphysics. That's, that's not really what the position is. The position is that what we've taken to be matter is actually, uh, is actually, I want to say, perception, uh, mental perceptions of ideas. So it's not that it's an illusion, it's that the reality of what we're perceiving is mind. It's, meant, it's a mental event rather than a material one, right? So we're not saying that an idealist metaphysics doesn't necessarily say, oh, well, you know, the, the, the world that we think is material is, is an illusion. What it says is the illusion is in thinking that, that, uh, that the world is, consists of some sort of stuff external to the mind, Right, exactly. That's sort of way of looking at things. It is. It's subtly different, but very important. You know, it's summed up for me in the uh, in my, one of my favorite quotes of all time, and that comes from the Lankavatara Sutra of uh, Buddhism, and it says exactly what you just said: nothing is as it seems, but neither is it otherwise. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow, that's great. You could exactly trip out what I was on, saying, only more profoundly. <laughs> you could trip out on that statement, but exactly this what you're saying, right? If you don't be fooled by appearances, but but don't look for a, some alternative that's totally different from the way things are, right? Because then you're you're into duality. You know, you're looking for something different from from what what the illusion is, and I, I think this is the danger of absolutism. You know, it tries to escape from the world. And Gnosticism has that idea too, in some forms. Um, you know, the idea of the, the, the universe being created by an evil demiurge, you know, rather right. than by God, because, you know, God would never create something as horrific as this world, so to speak. And uh, I think that's a dangerous, um, that's a dangerous path to follow. Right. It, you're, like, you're right. It can lead to, um, you know, trying to escape from conditions rather than dealing with them, right? Right. Like coping with them, finding ways to... Uh, Finding ways to adapt to and harmonize with the universe as it is is another way of looking at it. That's where that again that word practical comes in, you know, because we know that um, you know the the unity teachings are about uh, a lot of it's about just dealing with everyday sort of experiences that we have. Can we use our mind and spirituality to heal our bodies? Can 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 our how do we apply our minds in ways that um, make us more prosperous, make us happier, give, give us better relationships. It, you know, it's that, that's the practical dimension that emerges from how you're looking at the, the universe. If you just try to escape from it, then you're not really dealing with it. You're just sort of, you know, hiding out. You're becoming a sort of, in effect, a kind of hermit, right? Right. It's Folks, we have to escape. Stuff. We have to escape from part one, unfortunately. It's time for a break. But we'll come back. We'll come back after the, uh, these messages from Unity and talk more with Jim Gaither about his new revised The Essential Charles Fillmore. Join us then. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The Voice of an Awakening World. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. 
So hello and welcome back to today's, to today's show on world spirituality. I'm with Jim Gaither and we're talking about his newly revised edition of the essential Charles Fillmore, a guide to practical mysticism and metaphysics. And it's a fascinating book. Uh, there's a lot to it. Um, not only do you have the essential Charles Fillmore's writings, but you have very insightful uh, commentaries and introductions provided by Jim, um, which set the, the articles uh, in, in context and along uh, classical lines of inquiry when it comes to theology. Um, for instance, epistemology, the, you know, how do we know what's true, whatever. Uh, metaphysical theology, you know, the nature and being of God, all the way through Christology, um, and especially metaphysical Christology or unity Christology, the the nature of the, the divinity or the incarnation within our own being, which is um, something that's fascinating for a lot of us because it, it makes a real break uh, from tra some traditional uh, Christian approaches, you know, where Jesus is the only the one and only Son of God um, in unity. Uh, we see Jesus as a, a way shower, uh, showing us that we are also sons and daughters of God. So let's let's dip into that a little bit. Um, you mentioned the, in the book that uh, Fillmore had, you know, quite a high Christology in some ways. He he, he was fairly traditional in, in some aspects of his understanding of the Christ, right? Right. Um, yeah. The, he. he uh, his Christology, if you will, his understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ is really rooted in the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. You have this, what we call the cosmic Christ or the divine idea, the Logos, pre-existing the historical Jesus. And this Logos is also said to be, or this Word is also said to be, you know, the life and the light of, of humanity. There's an implication. Everything was made by it. There's an implication that this life and this light is in all of us, right? And so that what Jesus is historically in the Gospel of John is sort of a fulfillment or a fullness of that divine idea. So if you read the Gospel of John, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, there you see the foundation for Fillmore's Christology. What 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 ends up being a sort of uh, the, the interpretation, the distinction that most of us in New Thought make between historical Jesus and the Christ, he's aware of that and you know describes that distinction as well. Uh, and then he goes on and talks about how how the big piece of this. How do we follow Jesus all the way? What does that entail? So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so the the following Jesus all the way for for Fillmore means okay, we've got to be able to do like this healing work. We've got to be able to increase supply. He doesn't talk that much about walking on water, but I assume he, he takes it that that's possible, or at least, uh, you know, metaphorically possible, right? Maybe some of the things we need to look at just metaphorically. But ultimately, in the end, he wants to know what happened to Jesus after the crucifixion, 
What was the resurrection? What about that story in the book of Acts where he ascends? What does all that mean? How do we follow that? So that's sort of where his idea of, his idea of regeneration is sort of the ultimate, comes from that trying to follow that whole process and say, how do we follow how do we how do we follow Jesus? But it may be more to the point. How do we fulfill our own divine potential? What are the limits of that, or what are the stages of that, or what are the expressions of that? So it's a high Christology in the sense that he he has an idea of the cosmic Christ. He has an idea of the Christ, um, the the post ascension Christ, if you will, and the the Christ that's within all of us and how we you know, try to live out of that or discover that and live out of it. So that's kind of what I mean by, you know, a high Christology. It's, uh, it goes as far as traditional Christianity, but it also kind of goes beyond it in terms of its, you know, the application of that to what it, what's possible for humanity. Well, he kind of took literally some of the teachings of St. Paul, too, didn't he? Especially in regard to what you just referred to as regeneration, you know creating this body of light or whatever that, that he could... Yeah, the spiritual body in, that Paul talked about, yes. Yeah, and, and uh, there's there's various... I, I don't know if w- what you know about this, but it's, he seemed to have modified that idea towards the end of his life, this idea of uh, living in an immortal body of light. Um, but but it was... it was his, He was sort of intent upon taking... Uh, being's perfect idea, which is one of the one of his chapters, right? One of the chapters mm-hmm. you have, and 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 making it not just an idea, but an an actuality, an expression, right? So the the ultimate yeah. use of the the metaphysical trinity, if you like, right? But the uh, atonement in the sense at onement, you know, one with this in in body, mind, and spirit. So you know, in a, in a holistic sense. Right, exactly. It's yeah, yeah, that that Trinity part's very important because for him, spirit, soul, body, is is a sort of dimension. Or I don't know exactly how to think about this after having read him, but maybe an an emanation or a correspondence with what we think of as the divine Trinity: the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. You know, right. Mind, idea, expression, and then spirit, soul, body, sort of correlates with that or cor- corresponds to that in the in the human expression. And we're, so, in order to be fully human we are body soul and spirit and he just thought yeah he he believed in the, the possibility of of a, a of a body that would disappear from mortal sight is one of the ways they put it we regenerate regenerated to such a high uh dimension of uh, i don't know what you call it spiritual vibration or something where People who are not in a state of consciousness cannot see it, but nonetheless, that body is still there. So it's a kind of transformation of the body. Uh, and I think he believed in that. I think actually he and Myrtle Fillmore both believed in that right up to the end of their, their, uh, you know, their incarnation, if you will. Right? Because that, that chapter you mentioned, uh, Faith Precipitations, right. that, that's written like 1946 or something, which is a couple of years before he passed. And he's still talking about regenerating and the the immortal body in that in that chapter and so um i mean he makes he at least makes reference to it so right. interesting that, that's what they thought yeah so they thought okay and one of the things charles said was uh uh towards the end of his life according to the people that were with him it, it was uh well it looks like i'm going to have to go but don't worry i'll be back so <laughs> he was 
So he was thinking, okay, well, that's the point of, you know, his belief in reincarnation and Merle's belief in reincarnation. You get so far in an existence and maybe you haven't sort of reached the full demonstration of your divine potential. And so you come back as an opportunity to continue from where you left off and, and uh, you know, sort of keep moving forward till you do that full full expression. I mean, that's that, that's clearly what they sincerely believed and hypothesized from their understanding of the nature of the universe. I think it's a really difficult teaching to um, probably to understand, but also to, you know, accept wholeheartedly. And I think people are, people are challenged by that. But I also think, you know, the, the ancient Greeks thought of the idea of human flight, you know, a human flying machine a couple thousand years before it actually happened. The idea of a flying machine seemed ridiculous and impossible to that you know 2000 years ago or, or whatever but now we more or less take it for granted and are flying out into the solar system so um, seeing something the possibilities of something the vision of something maybe a person that first sees it doesn't achieve it right away but that doesn't mean it's unachievable it just means it hasn't been done yet so who knows so i don't well, think that's I don't any of this sort of visionary stuff out you know it just you know who knows also speaks to Fillmore's um, being influenced by Hinduism and, and Buddhism. You know, the, the, in his early years, uh, the, those those traditions were important to him, and and obviously you see them uh, being interpreted in in a, in a Christian way, but from from that same understanding, you know, which is not normative Christianity. But another thing that I like, it, you've got a chapter called uh, Mother God, and um, Again, based on um, one of his later books, uh, Jesus Christ Heals, the the chapter is Holy Spirit Fulfills the Law, which has always been one of my favorite chapters. But it speaks to that sort of feminine side or the mother side of God in it, doesn't it? And I know a lot of people as they get older, you know, resonate more and more with, with God as mother. Um, I don't know if that happened for, uh, for Charles Fillmore as well, but... But it definitely, um, his, his writings became, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say softer, but uh, di- different from his early writings. His, his early writings seem to me to be way more systematic and um, structured and intellectual, you know, like Christian Healing or something like that, one of those books. Mm-hmm. But his later books, like Adam Smashing, Power of Mind and Jesus Christ Heals, uh, have a different tone to them. Uh, they're softer, they're more fuzzy or something. I guess I can't explain it exactly, but um, it definitely opened to um, a, a different kind of spirituality, I think. Yeah, I think that's a very good characterization. Uh, you know, from my, from my reading of him, he starts out trying to be very, you know, philosophical, I guess you would say. It's, it is kind of at, a, at an intellectual level. Um, the, uh, the Hindus, you know, would call it a, a yanya yoga, right? You're reflecting on the truths of the universe in order to attain liberation or whatever. Um, his later writings, like Jesus Christ Heals, is is more. It still has that, but it it has a more uh, devotional dimension to it. So a way of sort of seeing that is in the in that early one from Christian Healing. He talks about the Christ primarily as you know an idea in divine mind, right? That's kind of the way he he talks about it, and then Jesus says fulfilling that is sort of our standard idea. When you read Jesus Christ Heals, he gets into 
things like using the name Jesus Christ because the, it connects you to the vibration of his consciousness, that anytime you use somebody's name, it connects you to the vibration of their consciousness. So that's why you actually literally use the name Jesus Christ in prayer, is to connect to that higher uh, consciousness of the ascended, uh, the ascended Jesus, who has completely sort of fulfilled the, the Christ idea on that view, right? So there's a devotional element to... You know, Jesus Christ and using the name Jesus Christ and connecting with that idea of uh, a human incarnation of the divine. And then there's the chapter that you pointed out, which is the, you know, thinking of God in terms of, uh, especially in terms of loving and comforting and supporting. And so for him, the Holy Spirit was primarily feminine at that point. And that's why he says, you know, talk about the Holy Spirit is mother. All along... I think from the beginning, he sort of accepted the idea that God is both masculine and feminine, if you will, both father and mother. But it wasn't anything that he much talked about until like that one chapter. And it sort of, it was like, aha, so the mother element, there's the father element, right? Create, if you will, divine mind. There's the son element of the divine idea. And if you've got a father and a son, then it seems like there ought to be a mother in there somewhere. So, so that's the Holy Spirit, the loving, sort of the, 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 the comforter, as, as uh, the Gospel of John refers to it. So I think that was a kind of a thing that evolved for him over, over the course of time, and he just began to yeah, go, get, get more into, his, into the feeling aspect of soul, whereas before he'd been primarily into the intellectual aspect, and that was just sort of that balancing of his character that was a result of the path he was the path he was following. So he didn't become any, I don't think he became any less uh, intellectual or put less emphasis on understanding. It's that that other element of, of warmth and compassion was becoming uh, fuller in him, and he felt it more strongly and therefore, you know, started to identify um, the loving aspect of God with uh, the Holy Spirit, the, the Mother. Which, interestingly, I'm sure you know this, Paul, but the early... Many of the early Christians thought of the Holy Spirit as feminine, and uh, and so you do find passages from like some of the some of the older texts where God, where the Holy Spirit is referred to as 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 the mother, uh, you know, as the mother dimension. I'm thinking of um, the Gospel of Philip, maybe. I think it was the Gospel of Philip, which was a you know a, a gospel that didn't a, a a book that didn't make it into the canonical scriptures, but it's a fairly early one. And in there, Philip states that um, you know that that uh, the Holy Spirit is 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 a mother is 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 a feminine aspect, and he talks about the um, he talks about the idea of. The, you know the, the virgin birth and that sort of thing from that perspective that's an interesting piece we don't need to go there but the point is that's one of the gospels the many gospels that refer to the the mother aspect of god but that's you know 1600 years before charles fillmore is writing 1664 right. and so i don't i don't know if he i don't know if he got if he ever i've never seen any, him make any reference to reading gnostic gospels or anything um so i think it was just something he concluded from his and, and, of course, he was aware that, that that was an idea that was in New Thought in a general way, Christian science in a general way, the, the mother aspect. So, yeah, that's, um, yeah, so he, but you're, you're right. It's, you're, to, your, to your original point, it's, it's, uh, it's softer, it's more devotional, it's more of a feeling nature. He's developing that in his, his uh, later writings, his later years. 
Yeah, and when I when I mentioned earlier about fuzzy, I didn't mean fuzzy in the sense that his ideas aren't clear, but fuzzy in the sense warm and fuzzy. You know, fuzzy, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 they're more the approachable. Yeah. You know, also there's a long tradition in uh, in, in esoteric Christianity, certainly of um, of Jesus's mother. You know, and um, I know Fillmore loved the the trinity of uh, life substance and intelligence. You see it a lot in his writings, and um, you know, if the if intelligence is the father, um, uh, then substance is the mother because it's the uh, the embracing of the energies of the universe, which is a bit like Shiva and Shakti again, Shakti right. being the the substance, and and the Holy Spirit is life. You know, is the is going out into expression as the the vibrant uh, celebratory life that comes from Father Father Mother God. So um, you know, there's all kinds of resonances there in in his writings. They're not always explicitly laid out, but they're. They're in there, I think, and so you can draw a number of conclusions from them if, if you if you want to, right? right? Well, and and mother is associated in our minds also with nature, so he talks about the healing power of nature as related to what the Holy Spirit is too. Another, I don't know if it's in that chapter or in the previous one. I think it's in that same that same chapter. So right. you know, the word matrix comes from a word for mother, right? Yes. Uh, and so we we tend to archetypally associate nature with with a divine feminine. I think it's just sort of part of the way we, you know, at the deepest levels of our being, the way we experience that, that realm in which we're living, we experience it as motherly. So the Holy Spirit as manifestation, if you will, in mind, idea, manifestation, the Holy Spirit is that which is sort of closest to us, that most immediately enfolds us or experiences as love and and support as uh, you know, almost identical to Mother Nature. So those are some interesting, yeah, interesting connections, I think, uh, conceptual connections, if you will. There's another uh, chapter that I love, um, again, based, uh, comes out of Jesus Christ Heals, and that is the uh, the healing power of joy. And you mentioned that in, in chapter 24, uh, Laugh and Sing, you know, the, the, the and we mentioned that celebratory aspect of, of uh spirituality too and i think uh, the, 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 that's another thing that Fillmore developed in a, in a deeper sense as he grew older was that that sense of joy you know that sense of the the numinous um presence of uh, goodness within everything the benevolence within everything and it's a powerful chapter as i remember that's one of my favorite chapters actually because uh, i'm a i'm a big fan of the healing power power of joy and laughter and humor um, and he talks about that there in that same chapter. So he talks about laughing your fears away or the healing power of laughter, and he talks about especially about music and singing. He really thought that the actual act of singing was, was uh, I want to say, therapeutic. It, it lifts up the vibrations in the body and joy. He, so he connects joy, enthusiasm, uh, laughter, uh, singing all in that in that chapter as a way of uh, uh, I don't know raising the vibrations. I, I also just think it's really insightful because now there's you know there's medical evidence that laughter has a has a therapeutic element to it. That joy Absolutely. has a therapeutic element to it. You know, and uh, I don't know if they've done much on on singing, but I wouldn't be surprised. It's it's hard to uh, sing enthusiastically and not 
sort of gets your level of joy up a little bit, you know, something about. Well, and many, you know, many spiritual traditions have done lots of work on that. You know, the Sufis talk a lot about sound and vibration and and Hindus, too. So and that chapter has one of my favorite um, uh, affirmations, even though it's got a sort of old school feel to it. It's great. It says, uh, I rejoice and am glad because thy harmonizing love makes me every whit whole. Uh-huh. I love it. It's great. Yeah. Like harmonizing love. There, there's the feminine aspect again, isn't it? The harmonizing uh-huh. love makes me every whit whole. Um, you know, it's, it's just right. glorious. Um, and I rejoice and I'm glad in that because thank you, God. You know, you provided me with everything I could possibly need to live a a happy and productive life. And uh, to me, that's Charles Fillmore at, at his very best, right. an encourager. He, he, and he, you know, he loved to sing himself. So he was all, he was all about the, the joy songs and that sort of thing. And he, did, he said, you know, he didn't care if people sounded good, if they're out of tune or anything like that. He just thought it was good for him to, to sing as best they could and sing out with joy. Um, your, the, your favorite affirmation there kind of reminds me of something that, uh, that occurred to me recently is that one of the things you know a challenge of using affirmations is sometimes you don't when you start saying them you don't immediately feel that right i rejoice and i'm glad and blah 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 (laughs) but a funny thing is you know affirmations are to be repeated i i have this theory that if you repeat an affirmation like that long enough you just keep saying it over and over again eventually it will cause you to laugh because it will shift your. It will. Sh- it'll. It'll seem to you to be absurd that you're affirming this thing that you obviously don't feel, and the very absurdity absurdity of it will could cause you to laugh or sort of lift your spirits up. You know what I mean? Because like absurdity is is a is a kind of uh, comedy, a kind of uh, humor that makes us laugh when something you know. So somebody saying, um, what's the, what's the one? I'm a lot. I, I'm. I, I'm uh, what, what alive, you know? alert, awake, enthusiastic. Yeah. I'm alive, alert, awake, enthusiastic. You just keep saying <laughs> that over again. You can't. You cannot keep saying in that mood. I don't think. If you go long enough, sooner or later, you're going to either see the ridiculousness of your saying it that way, and it'll make you laugh, or you'll start to feel it. So sometimes those, some of those kinds of affirmations, you do just have to use them over and over again. But eventually, you'll, you'll you know, it'll get you there, even if it's only by. Uh, a sudden realization of absurdity in what you've in what your perspective had been and a shifting into that uh, that that more uplifted place. Anyway, it's a weird good point. Well, I think uh, you know the old-fashioned phrase "every wit whole" too makes you chuckle mm. a little bit. So it's yes. kind of fun to just to, to say it because it, who would say that today? You know that nobody right. talks like that. But another uh, but another funny. word he liked to use that makes me laugh kind of the same way is thrill. You like to use the word thrill. It's, it's, you know, I feel the thrill of blah, 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 you know, whatever it is, the energy of the Holy Spirit or whatever, uh-huh. which is, you know, not, again, not a word that people put a lot into their affirmations today, I don't think. I'm thrilled and every whit whole. It is, it is kind of whole <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and it's fun and, you know, you get what he's saying. So, yeah. Anyway. So, um, one of reading coming... older books, too, is this, they, you know, they have a different way with language. And it's sort of Absolutely. We're coming to the end of the show. Um, what did we miss that you really wanted to convey to the audience about the book? Uh, well, just um, 
I guess the main the main point I would want to make is if you want to understand if you want to sort of see the whole range of Charles Fillmore's thought and understand how it fits into the stream of the grander stream of human thought that's really the a you know a big p- purpose in writing that you know for which I wrote this book it was just I wanted people to see Charles in that in that larger context and also see it in a way that puts it in those systematic categories where we can see how it relates to um, what his whole system is and how how to relate to it. So it's I think it's a good book to get a full sense of what his his perspective was and some of his best ideas. So there's and this is the uh, the latest book that's been published by uh, Unity Books and uh, is available from Unity. So. Uh, get get hold of it if you can. Uh, well worth uh, studying it, and uh, even just for um, Jim's insightful commentaries, as well as the wonderful work of uh, of Fillmore himself. Let me tell you about next week's show, and then we'll say goodbye to Jim. Uh, next week, uh, the prolific British author, mystic, and philosopher Tim Freak joins me. And he's going to share with us some of his latest thinking on the mystical path, civilization, and our role in living a successful life, especially during this time of COVID. Uh, Tim is one of Watkins' 100 most influential living spiritual teachers. So uh, it'll be interesting to to talk with him. So uh, join me next week for that. But right now, I want to thank... uh, wholeheartedly once again jim gaither for being on the show what what a lovely insightful show it's been oh, and thank you again for in- inviting me i'm happy to come back anytime to discuss anything it sounds like you're gonna have a great show next week so excited to hear that as well yeah yeah well thank you and thanks folks for listening to world spirituality part of the voice of an awakening world uh, glad you're part of this Um, and uh, hope to talk to you next week. Until then, take care. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.